Greetings, and thank you for checking out this sermon from Kingdom Life Community Church in Morrison, Illinois. If you'd like more information about our church, go to kingdomlife.global. And now, here is the sermon from our pastor, Steve Harmon. God is definitely good, is he not? Through every situation, <clears throat> through everything that we go through, uh, he remains faithful in all things. Um, we know that um, this life on earth is, is temporary, and it is not, we also know that it is not the end, and so, which is why um, we don't necessarily have to be careful in how we spend it for the Lord, because we know um, we're going to go be with him when it is over. <clears throat> okay, so I want to talk a little bit today, uh, put some things together. We're going to look at, um, uh, kind of go through a little bit of Hebrews, but the idea today that we're talking about for the next few Sundays is going to be, we've got this topic of pursue throughout the year and the different topics of, of what we're talking about. And what we're talking about today is, is going to be pursuing uh, faith. And what does it mean to pursue faith? And what is faith. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, ideas out there, but you have to remember that every time we talk about something, we have to go back and get the definition of what the Bible says of what faith is. <clears throat> and so faith, the Bible uh, describes it. You, you'll notice that several times throughout the Gospels when Jesus is meeting with people and he's, uh, they're coming to him and they're needing a healing, there's many times that Jesus, that they're thanking him and says, your faith has made you well. Um, uh, and so there's, there's this thing about faith that is, it's real, it, it's powerful, and it releases things that God has given you into your life. If there is a lid... Okay, if there is a lid, I was praying about this, uh, over your life, over your heart, or over a church, and we've talked about lids, especially in uh, intercessors and stuff like this, <clears throat> the lid is not about the enemy. The lid is about faith and what you will truly believe what God wants to do through you, through this church. Because the enemy can't, cannot stop what the Lord wants to do. And one of, the things, uh, one of the things he does is he tries to keep you from believing the things that God wants to do. See, I was driving the other day, and I, I, I uh, felt this in, in thinking about messages and faith and stuff like that. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, we're not our biggest fan and you should be, because, you know, you're the, you're the star of your own story. And so, uh, so, but sometimes we're not our biggest fans. Sometimes um, I don't have a lot of faith in myself. And sometimes people don't have a lot of faith in themselves. They have faith in God. But they don't necessarily have faith enough to believe that God really loves them the way the Bible says that they love them. Sometimes when someone like Leif comes and you get this overwhelming, awesome thing that happens with just a release of God's love, and you kinda, it's kind of like, um, uh, like that first cup of coffee in the morning, it's so good, you know, and, 
it feels so good and it starts your day, but then your day goes on and things happen. And so we kind of uh, get past that first cup of coffee and we're wondering ourselves, uh, you know, is it really real? You know, is it, does he really love me? The, the things that come against us are the things that, are, that assault our faith to believe that God really is who he says he is and he'll really do what he says he'll do and in me, not just in the world. Before we start thinking about grand themes throughout the world and all these different kinds of things, the first belief you have to have is the belief of what God believes about you. And so I can believe in God for salvation, right? I can believe in God for you. But I have to believe in God for me first. It's not a selfish thing, but I impart who I am. <clears throat> and if I'm praying for people or whatever, I am, you impart who you are. And so, uh, and, and so instead of imparting great faith, sometimes what comes out of you is, is unbelief. Now, there are non-believers, there are unbelievers, and there are believers. Kind of like the three-chair thing a little bit. And, and the non-believers are the people who don't believe at all. They believe everything you talk about when you talk about Christ is hogwash, and they don't want anything to do with it. And we know who those are. That's pretty evident, because they're not shy about saying that. You know, you meet them talking with atheists or whoever out. They'll say, man, how can you believe that trash, right? You know who non-believers are. Uh, <coughs> unbelievers are just what I talked about. They can believe for other things, but they don't have faith enough from for themselves. Mostly that comes from uh, a lack of uh, security in believing who you are in Christ. So most of the times we come to the Lord with our hands held out like the little orphan boy Oliver, right? Oliver Twist. Please, sir, may I have some more? Please. As if you're begging God to do something that he already wants to do. So. It's the framework and the lens of, of how you see. And so, we want to address faith in all things, but we want to address faith within ourselves. And Jesus was dealing with this. You know, there's, um, faith also plays a part in, in your ability to receive. I don't know if you knew that. You see, in Mark, Jesus went back home and he was teaching and the things that were coming out of the mouth of the people that he grew up with were, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this, where's he getting this words? Where's he getting this knowledge? Where, and so the issue was, is they were talking themselves out of belief of who Jesus was. And the Bible is very clear that it's not that he didn't have the power to do work, it's that he could do no power because they had no ability and faith to believe and receive what he wanted to do when he came to them. So it's not that not any people were healed, but it was not many. And there weren't a lot of the things done that Jesus desired to do because they refused to receive because they couldn't believe. You hear it. They're talking themselves out of this. They're hearing words that are maybe piercing their heart, but like, well, wait a minute. He's, he's a carpenter. They're not able to grasp the, 
the, what sets the gift that's set before them because it doesn't look like what they think it should look like. And so because of that, they, they're like, eh, that can't be it. That, that's, that's not. And he's not able to do the desires of his heart for those people in that place because they can't receive and they won't believe. They didn't have faith enough. Faith revolves around in the realm of choice. Because faith is not always having everything all planned out or understanding everything before you jump in. Sometimes it's this belief and conviction that you have that you know God is calling you to do something, but you don't know how it's going to work out. And a lot of times, I believe probably most everybody here has probably faced that in one way or the other. You didn't have enough money for something, and all of a sudden God showed up. You know, whether it was, <coughs> should I tithe this week, or should I buy groceries, or should I do this? And when you stepped out in faith, and, and you blessed the Lord with tithe or something like that, you saw how God came through and fulfilled other things. Other you, others have testimonies, other testimonies revolving around the same thing. You trusted God and God showed up. Now, how he showed up is totally up to God. Maybe he didn't show up exactly how you thought he would, but he showed up. And that... Uh, can affect you in one of two ways. It can strengthen your faith to believe. Or, if you allow it, it will cause fear in you because you didn't like the fact that it felt like he came at the last moment. And you're like, you know, we, I'm, I've heard this before. It's like God showed up in somebody's life and what it produced in them with their, their inability to perceive it for what it was was a different thing that said, oh, man, we're going to have to, that was close. We don't want to let that happen again, right? We want to make sure that we're never in that position again or we never have to do this, that, and the other. And what they're really doing is, is, is moving the fact that they were in need, they, trust, they could trust God, and God showed up. They're moving that out of the way and taking the reins to do things for themselves instead of focusing on the fact that, hey, there's a miracle here in my life. The evidence of my faith just revealed itself that God showed up and worked on my behalf. That should not create fear. That should create a greater sense of faith. So the book of Hebrews that I believe Paul writes, as I've read Hebrews and looked through that, I believe Paul is the author or a disciple of Paul is the author. Because I, as I read Hebrews, I notice certain phrases and certain concepts that I have read in Romans or a few other letters that, that Paul specifically has written. And so that's not a thus saith the Lord or it's just I just believe that, that Paul wrote it. Um, or it's possible a, a disciple of his wrote it because the, a disciple would use some of the same language that, that Paul would use, understanding those same concepts. Um, so I'm just going to do a, a brief little, how do we get to Hebrews chapter 11? Um, first, when you're looking back and you're going through Hebrews, uh, especially as you're, you're looking at starting like chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, these things are the chapters, and I'm going to impress you with my math here. 
7, 8, 9, and 10 come before 11. I don't know if you knew that. <clears throat> but in the number line, I think all mathematics people can agree that those numbers are before 11. And when you're reading the Bible, you, you understand that the chapters and the numbers were, were put in at a later point to help understand and break it apart. But in reality, if you read it, try and read it like it originally was and don't disconnect between chapters, there's a theme that runs through there that once you get to chapter 11, brings everything into a whole, so you don't have to try and interpret chapter 11 by itself or chapter 10 by itself. They are interconnected with one another as you're going through this. And the writer, who I believe is Paul, is writing to the Hebrews, is writing to some, some Jewish people, and the reason he's writing to them, he's bringing this stuff to them, is that there's going to be a whole lot of things that they do not understand about this new covenant that God has made with mankind. And the reality of that is if you go back into the Gospels, you'll see that when Jesus is confronting Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders. They're always trying to trap him himself because we have the law. There's these conversations that they're having in and out where they're like, you know, well, we, Abraham is our father, right? And he's like, well, Abraham's not your father. If Abraham were your father, you would have known that he was talking about me and, and Moses the same way. We have Moses, right? Well, Moses talks about me. He's like, your father is actually the devil and you love to do his work. And he calls the father his father, which is, which is, not, which is not a, you know, if you're, trying to, if you're trying to win friends and influence people in the Hebrew world of that time, that is not something that you would say. <laughs> Those are things that are, that are probably are going to drive wedges between you and the religious leaders. Most everybody who's being a disciple at the time or being discipled under a rabbi are looking to get closer and move up into the religious order so that they can have influence and power. And Jesus already has influence and already has power and doesn't need what they got. <laughs> so he is saying and he is speaking truth and you'll know that truth does one of two things. It either finds fertile soil to be planted in or creates offense in other people, which is why in this culture you have so many people saying, I'm speaking my truth. You can have my truth, but you better hope it is the truth. Because my truth, if it comes from my own perception, unaffected by what the Word of God says, is the wrong truth, is not the truth. It is a lie. And that's why we're seeing so much in the culture today and even in religious uh, things around the world is people building things upon a lie and not on the truth. Why? Because they want to win friends and influence people of the culture. And they're looking for a type of power. Uh, just like the religious people of Jesus' day, they're trying to climb that so-called corporate ladder in the cultural world instead of being concerned with, uh, because it's exactly opposite in the kingdom. There's no climbing the corporate ladder in the kingdom. As a matter of fact, it's descending. You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? You better be a servant, right? There's no, there, it, it's a, the kingdom of God is exactly opposite than the culture of the world and obviously the culture of, of the enemy. 
Everything that you see in the corporate world or everything you see in uh, the culture of the world is, 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 is climbing and, and power and influence and trying to get to that next level and a whole lot of struggle, a whole lot of worry, and a whole lot of trouble. In the kingdom of God, it's like, hey, let's serve some people. I'm not striving for something because I already am. I'm not looking to be better. I've already been reborn and am, and am created in his image. I'm as good as I'm going to get from the eyes of the Father. That doesn't mean I'm not working on my holiness here on this earth and you know, trying to be a better disciple and getting rid of more of the flesh. But from the Father's point of view, as he looks at me, he looks at me through the sacrifice of Jesus and he sees me as perfect and he sees me as holy. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And on that basis and on that count, the Father can now have the type of fellowship with you that he's always desired to have as a son and a daughter, not as a created being. And so there's a deeper level of relationship. Jesus wasn't all about just him. Hope that doesn't scare anybody. Jesus was very, very open about him being a door. And the door you go through is him, but the destination is the Father. This is why Hebrews is going to talk about, hey, listen, you can come boldly before the throne. Who sits on the throne? The Father. You can come boldly into his presence. Why? Because Jesus did it. And the Father no longer looks at you based upon your condition or what you've done. He looks at you based upon what Christ has done, how Christ has lived. Because the Father desires. And the Father's not sitting on the throne saying, you are so lucky you received Jesus. He's not sitting there like that. The Father, I don't know, can he thank himself? Thank me. I don't know. Thank goodness that you have received and, you have, and you have, you've come through that door because I desire. I sent him so that I could have fellowship with you. I sent him so that we could be together in communion. I sent him so that because I am the answer to all of the issues of your life. And if you will come, you will sense the Father's love working through you. And that changes things. There's only one thing you can do with love, two things you can do with love, accept it or deny it. Accept it or, or not receive it. But you're going to know it's there. So Hebrews, so he's going to be writing to Hebrews because they're, they're not going to understand this fully. And why? Because they have the law. The Old Testament, they have, they're, they're based on the, the Old Testament. The word for testament is actually covenant. So God made a covenant. And that covenant is usually based on a if this, then that sort of scenario in the Old Testament, which is why when you see um, laying down the law, all these different things, if you will, right, do the law, then I will do these things. If you will come unto me and do all these things, then what I will do is I will bless you. And remember one of the promises he said to the Israelites, he's like, listen, if you come and if you follow me, you'll, I'll visit none of the sicknesses on you that I did on the Israelites. None of those plagues will hit you. So there's, there's a whole lot of if this, then that in the Old Testament when it comes to a covenant and making a covenant. Now, um, in the New Testament, and we're going to talk about this a little fully, it's, it's different. <coughs> it's different. You, you don't live under the law anymore. And what I mean by that is you're not using the law 
to prove your holiness to the Lord. There's no if this, then that type of scenario in the new covenant like there is in the old covenant. And so, so first what he's going to do, and, and I'm just gonna hit some highlights here. I'm not gonna go into it deeply, but he's gonna talk about you know, Jesus. You know, he talks about him uh, being from the order of Melchizedek. Now you remember the, the high priest Melchizedek. This is before the law and the priesthood that Abraham is coming and Melchizedek is a priest from Salem, which most scholars believe was probably Jerusalem. But anyway, and he meets him and, he, and Abraham gives him a tithe, a tenth of everything. And, and so this, the Bible talks about this order of Melchizedek is having no end. And Melchizedek is a type form. Some people actually believe it is, it is Christ in the Old Testament. And so there's a priesthood that's been established in the Old Testament that predates the Levitical priesthood. Okay? So the Levitical priesthood was started, right, through when Moses was bringing them out of, of uh, Egypt and God is talking to Moses and Aaron, you know, and the different tribes that they have and the, 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 the Levites are gonna be the group out of the 12 tribes are going to be the group where the, the priests are gonna come from, <coughs> okay? Little history for you. And so, but Melchizedek was long before that, and so when he's talking about Jesus going to be a high priest, Jesus is not coming from the Levitical priesthood. And, and they would have a problem with that. Why? Because the law says that the tribe of Levi is going to be where the priests come from. So how can he be a high priest if he's coming from the tribe of Judah? That doesn't work. So he's explaining that his priesthood comes far beyond the Levitical priesthood. Why? Because... It's a different covenant. And the high priest is not going to come from the tribe of Levi anymore, okay? The high priest, he's saying, is coming from an order of Melchizedek, and that is eternal. Are you with me so far? Is it making sense? Okay, so there's, there's this priesthood that predates the Levitical priesthood that the writer of Hebrews, I think Paul, is saying that Jesus is a part of. And he says it's eternal. There's no end to it. Now, he's going to talk about here in priesthoods, he's going to talk about, and he's going to say, hey, listen, the Levitical priests lived and they died, right? And so there was a, a time. <clears throat> and as, as you Bible scholars all know, that in the Old Testament, there was a day of atonement. And in that day of atonement is when uh, the people would come to Israel, or excuse me, they'd come to Jerusalem and they would... They're supposed to bring their lambs with them. <coughs> it's supposed to be perfect, and it's supposed to be this without blemish. And they're supposed to bring them, and they bring them to the high priest, right? And you come into the, um, you come into the temple, uh, whether it was the Porta Temple in Moses' time or the, the permanent temple at Solomon's time, and then rebuilt. What you have, the first thing you come in, and remember, there's only one way in. There's no back door to the temple, so when, when Jesus talks about the path being narrow, what he's really saying is there's no other gay way to get to uh, the Father and to get where you desire to go except through that one entrance. And through that one entrance is the altar of sacrifice. And that is where they would, the priest would, would, would uh, sacrifice the perfect lamb for the sins 
of people. Listen, this is gonna be a bloody mess. This is a bloody, bloody mess. This is like, I'm not trying to implant this, but if you watch, ever watched a, a horrible horror movie where there's a lot of blood, magnify that at this sacrifice because you're talking about millions of people that are coming <coughs> in and out and sacrificing lambs for the sake of their sin. After that is this bronze laver, which is this, this place this, where you, you would wash, all right? So you've got the sacrifice the laver where the priest would wash himself is the symbol in the new covenant of sanctification. The washing of the water of the word, right? And so, that, and so from that you come into, so that's his outer court stuff, then there's the inner court, and then there's the holiest of holies of which the veil sits that nobody but the priest can go back behind that veil. And in the, in the inner court, you, you have the, you have the incense, you have the bread, and you have the menorah, the lampstand. <clears throat> All of those things represent Christ. The bread represents Christ. The incense, which are prayers, represent Christ. Who is Christ? He lives to make intercession between the Father and us, right? Okay, and then uh, the lampstand. What does Jesus say about himself? Remember, in that inner court, that lampstand is the only light. What does Jesus say about himself? I am the light of the world. Right? He is the only light. All this stuff in the temple is showing us that what Jesus is saying in, in the Gospels is he's, rep, he's telling you, like, it, it's not that this stuff now has no purpose, it's that it was all pointed to me and I am the fulfillment. And so in the Old Covenant, you had to come every year. Every year, you had to bring a lamb, not the same one, because he didn't survive it. So you had to come every year and you had to bring a lamb on the Day of Atonement. And then what would happen is, is that a certain day, the priest himself is the only one who could go behind that veil. And he was making intercession for himself because, listen, if you don't make intercession for yourself and you walk into the holies of holies where the presence of God, you're dead. Which is why he would have bells around him like this and a rope. <clears throat> I don't hear no jingling. If you didn't hear no jingling, he did something wrong and he was gone. And you can't go out there and get him. You got to pull that guy out. Send in the next. So he's, he's going to be really good at understanding. He wants to make sure he does everything right in making a sacrifice for himself. Because he's also going to be making that sacrifice for the entire nation as well. And as he's going in there and he's doing that, he's got to do that every year. Nobody else can go behind that veil but the high priest of that time. Nobody else. <clears throat> so that's the old covenant. That's what that looks like. It's important for you to understand that because if, if you don't grasp hold of what it was, you have a hard time understanding of what it means today and who Jesus is. So we go over here to the writer of Hebrews and he's, we've talked, he's, you know, if you're a good Hebrew, you understand these things. So he's going through and he's talking about the priesthood. He's like, listen, and this is where it gets exciting because in, in uh, seven, excuse me, seven, eight, nine, and 10, what he's doing is he's really saying, he's like, listen, now the high priest we have, you, don't, you, you no longer have to go anymore and you no longer have to make that sacrifice for sin every year because he's going to explain the priesthood of Jesus, what it means that he was perfect, John the Baptist, what does he call them? Behold the lamb. Why does he call him the lamb? 
because he is the lamb that is going to be the permanent sacrifice for everybody. So no longer do you have to go back and, and cut a lamb for every year for a sacrifice of sins because the lamb of God, God sent his own. Remember, let's go all the way back to Abraham's time. What is he doing with Isaac? What does God say? Take Isaac sacrifice him to a place where I'm going to show you, right? They get all the way up there. He's prepared to sacrifice his own son, which I think, listen, if you're ever going to know how God feels, Abraham's going to have somewhat of an understanding when it comes to being obedient to sacrifice his own son. But God is not going to let him do that. Why? There's this conversation that Isaac and, hey, hey, dad, um, I see the wood. I see everything else. Where's the lamb? What does Abraham say? And he says this through faith. My son, God will provide for himself the own lamb, his own lamb. And he does. As soon as he knows that Abraham is serious about following God, and the Bible is going to tell us <coughs> that he trusted God so much that he knew that the promise could be resurrected. Isn't that powerful faith? He's like, God gave me this gift. God said this is the stuff that was going to happen. But he's asked me to lay it on the altar and he's asked me to sacrifice it. He's God. And he's about to to do it when God speaks out and says, no. For now I know. (laughs) Right? For now I know. What does he know? Well, I think it's appropriate us for today because a lot of times we say we've got callings and we've got giftings and we've got purpose and we've got a place to go. But let me ask yourself, has God ever asked you to to put that on the altar and sacrifice it even though you know he said for you to have it? Are you loving God for who he is or are you loving God for what he can do? Because there's a difference. And he's coming through this, he's like, he, you know, with, with uh, Abraham, and he's like, I, he, he is, he's going to, now scholars believe, <clears throat> some, not all, <coughs> I think it's really interesting, that the place where Abraham took Isaac would be the place a few thousand years later where the Lamb of God would be crucified. Mm. Possible. Interesting to think of it. But the one thing to understand is this, is that God did provide a lamb. God did provide a sacrifice for sin. Why do you need a sacrifice for sinfulness? Because you're sinful. I don't know if you knew that. You're a sick people. And you're imperfect. And you were born in imperfection. And you never will be perfect. Perfect enough to be your own lamb to sacrifice yourself for your own sins. You can't, because you've got blemishes. You're not perfect. And God recognizing this and setting up the sacrificial system in the Old Testament because it's going to be pointing to what is going to happen in the New Testament with Jesus. John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God. (coughs) Remember in the Old Testament, the reason you had to keep coming back is because the lambs could never take away your sin. The lambs only covered your sin. And so when, Jesus, or when John the Baptist is speaking about Jesus, he says something that probably a lot of people around him are going to be like, what? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus is such a perfect lamb that he's no longer going to cover your sin. 
He's going to remove the sin from you. This is important. If you're a Hebrew, this seems impossible. If you're a Gentile, you're like, cool, right? Awesome, woo party on. But if you're a Hebrew, you're going to be like, uh, you know, I, I've been studying the law my whole life, and it feels more comfortable for me to keep trying to do my own righteousness than trust what you're saying. And it's not that that doesn't happen. There's this thing in, in the New Testament, or in the church today, maybe you've experienced it, I know I've had this term called legalism, or legalistic. And it really what it does is it beats hell into people. It, it throws on all these types of, now your holiness is, de- it brings holiness, your holiness back and being dependent on how well you can be holy, especially in front of people. And God help you if you ever admit to private sins. Because in legalism doesn't, doesn't bring mercy, legalism brings judgment. It's the same as is what following, in, you know, in theory, it's the same as being Old Testament law. And there's a lot of churches out there, and, you know, it's, it's, not that, it's not that we're all perfect and thank God we're enlightened and we don't act like that. These are part of the things we battle in our lives every day. And choosing of whether I'm going to be legalistic about this or whether I'm going to go to the way, other side and then nothing matters anymore or whether I'm going to walk in the truth of, yes, things matter in how I live, but not according to how God sees me, but according to my response and my desire to pursue the one who loved me. Me killing my flesh that the Lord is asking me to do and crucify my flesh, as Paul would say it, that the Lord is asking me to do is because of what he's done, not for me to be add anything to the sacrifice on the cross. My crucifying of my flesh is not an addendum or an addition to the cross. It is just the response. It's just the response. And so I want to live a holy life. Why? Because now I can. Now I've been given that base start kind of like Adam in the garden because of what Jesus has did. And now my response is not to go running back to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but to pursue that tree of life in all things. That's why sanctification doesn't need to be heavy. It needs to be happy. It needs to be joyful because it's good. And so you have the bronze laver, you have the light, the bread, um, <clears throat> the incense, and then you have the veil. Does <clears throat> it sound interesting to you that the Bible talks about that when Jesus was on the cross and he died at that instant, what happened? The veil was torn, wasn't it? The veil was torn from top to bottom. Listen, I, you're talking about the temple, and so there, there are certain different scholars out there, but I align myself with those scholars, and there's many of them, that talk about the curtain being uh, probably about four inches thick. Listen, you can't open the door to the outer court, from the outer court to the inner court, and have the wind blow the curtain open. <laughs> that, that doesn't work. 
people, you know when Paul, Paul gets taken up to the third heaven and sees things that he can't express? Can you imagine what, a, what a, a, you know, someone outside and they've opened the court and they see the wind blow this little puny curtain like, I saw the ark, you know, they're gonna, no. This curtain is probably <coughs> how they raised it before is, I can't remember the exact, maybe 150 like horses on each side and they, to raise that curtain to put it up in place, be roughly about four inches thick. It's not going to move. And so the crazy thing about that is that when he dies on the cross, that veil, which was a separation between the presence of God and the earth, which God established, I can't be in you, but I'm going to be around you. I got to be in this little spot, right? That veil has been ripped. That four-inch curtain has been ripped. And it wasn't ripped from the bottom. It was ripped from the top where no one can reach it. So who ripped the veil? The father did, didn't he? Why? Because there's no longer going to be a separation between the Father and his people. And so that is ripped. So that is signifying, listen, what that is basically saying is like, listen, we're done with this covenant. Whoosh! We're done with this old one. You ain't gonna need this veil anymore. If you don't believe that, right? How do I want to say this? Do you understand why certain religions now wear veils? Are you here? Why? Because there is no son in their religion. And he can't really be a father. And so they're living as orphans. And so the veil goes back. Does that make sense to you? Do, you? do you get this? This is more than just about culture. This is about bondage and belief built upon a lie about who he is and holding people into bondage and legalism so that they can never experience a loving father. Now, lest we just keep it there, people, we're wearing invisible veils ourselves. We may, we may not put this on, but <clears throat> a lot of times in our approach to Father, we're so much more well-versed in, in legalism and Old Testament and veils than we are in understanding our identity in Christ and being able to come boldly before the throne. And the Father is saying, come. <coughs> it's like he's standing up on the mountain again saying, come. And we're all like, ah, you're pretty big. I'm pretty good from here, you know. You're pretty holy. I've seen the lightning. I've seen the thunder. Ah, I'm good. I'm good. But what you, you're going up, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going up. Well, you, you go ahead and tell him what he says, and uh, that's good enough for me. See, we have that in the Old Testament. The problem is, is we're living that in the New Testament, <clears throat> a lot of people, a lot of times. I'm just too afraid to, just too afraid to go too far with this stuff. What is it, what is it going to do? What's it going to mean for me? You know, is it going to make me have to change a whole lot? It's, what does this mean? It's just scary. I'm, I'm fine right where I am. And those are, you know, probably saved people, but just very uncomfortable with the type of relationship that the father desires to have with a son and daughter. 
I have struggled. I'm not going to lie. I've struggled to believe at times in my life that he actually loves me the way he says he does. Because what I'm really saying is like, I don't think you really know me and how bad I've been. You know, we stand there like Moses coming up with all, in the presence of God, coming up with all these excuses of why we can't go and do what God has called us to do. And God's saying, you know, my translation, you really think I don't know how bad you really are? You really don't think, see, Steve, I'm so brilliant. I don't just know what you've done. I know what you thought that nobody else has known. I know the evil that really lies there within you. And I'm here to tell you, Steve, that that's not who you are. And that's not who I've created you to be. So I'm coming. I'm coming for you in love. And what God desires to do really is to show you the goodness of who he is so that I will respond like a son. My father is good. Where does faith come into this? Because sometimes I don't always feel it. I would love to be as like some people act, where it feels like, you know, we're in the presence all the time, you know. All the, I, there are a few people like that, I, I'm, you know, and I would, I, I would love that. <clears throat> the reality of it is, is I don't always feel that. But just because I don't feel it doesn't mean it's not true. And so where my faith comes in is saying, okay, listen, I know I may not feel this way, but I am this way. And so my faith is going to launch on to what he says the truth is, not what my feelings are telling me. Is this making sense in the culture today? So the truth is, is this is what God has said, and this is what God has done, and this is the promises that God speaks over me. I may not feel it, but to heck with that stuff. I'm going to throw my anchor into to what he says. You know, those of you who are married... It didn't always feel like the wedding day throughout your life, does it? Right? Doesn't always feel like that first time you've met one another. Sometimes there's this thing called, I don't know, arguments. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Disagreements. What, what is it? What is it your dad used to say? Intense fellowships. Yes, intense fellowships. I thought that was always a good way to present that. Intense fellowships. Yes, you have those. But people who've placed their hope and feelings, when it no longer feels like what it did, to them, it means it's the end of the road of that covenant that I made with that other person. And people who are, call themselves Christians who have based their truth on how they feel are some way, shape, and form, when things get rocky, are going to release themselves because they believe that covenant is over with or wasn't strong enough. Now, that was strong enough. You just didn't have faith. There's some things I, I want to read here real quick. In, in chapter 10, you know, uh, he's going along here and he says in verse 4, for it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, right? Bulls and goats. Say that 10 times fast, but silently. Okay. Bulls and goats. Bulls and, yeah, that's bad. All right. So it's not possible for them to take away sins. And so then he's going to go along down here and he's going to say in verse uh, five, he's going to use some, he says, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but the body, 
but a body you've prepared for me and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. You have had no pleasure, right? You have had no pleasure. <coughs> then I said, see, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written to me in the volume of the book. Look at what he says about this. He's like, you have no pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. Why? And they were offered in accordance to the law. And he says, see, I've come to do your will, O God. He takes, a, this is what happens in, in what he's talking about. He's like, this, he says, <clears throat> he takes away the first, meaning the covenant, that he may establish the second, Christ. He's taking away, because what are they going to rely on? Hey, listen, this is what the law says. You've got to do this sacrifice. When you mess up, you've got to kill something, right? You've got to make it right. You've got to follow the law. And what he's saying is like, listen, the, the power of what God has brought you has taken away this first, and now he's going to replace it with the second. <clears throat> and the second is going to look a whole lot different than the first covenant. It's going to fulfill some things but our react, our, our, the requirements of it are a little bit different. Listen, we're still as sinful as we were. It's not, like, it's not like a diet covenant, you know? It's not like, oh, we took out all the sugar. No, no, no. It, it's, it doesn't make light of your sin at all. It's just that God has decided in this new covenant that he's going to deal with sin once and for all, forever, not yearly. So he's removing the second one so that he can bring for, moving the first one so he can bring forth the second one that is going to say, listen, man, congratulations. You received the Lamb of God. He's taking care of your sin forever, forever. Yeah, but I feel better when I go and sacrifice lambs. It feels like I'm doing something. Yeah, I know, but it didn't work. Didn't produce anything good. I mean, you read Isaiah, you read, we went through the prophets. What were the prophets mainly saying? All of them had this one theme, right? You disobedient heathens, right? You left God, you chased after other gods. And they're going to say some similar things that we hear a lot in Isaiah, which is like, see, you do your sacrifices, but your heart is far from me, which means your sacrifices have nothing to do with you desiring to be in relationship with me or to follow anything. They don't mean nothing. That's why Christ comes. It's no longer dependent on your ability to do law or holiness. It's on his ability to follow and be the fulfillment of the law and to live in relationship. So the pattern of our New Testament is no longer the law. It is Christ. So I'm not going back to the law <clears throat> to, to prove my holiness. I'm walking in Christ and through Christ, and I'm walking past that in holiness, not to get holiness. Be holy for I am holy. How does that happen? Because holy came down so that I could be holy. And again, my response for that is like, man, I wanna produce a whole lot of good fruit. I wanna, I wanna pursue everything that he has. And I want to do things. I want to remember when our kids were young and they loved us. <laughs> we were there all in all, right? It's like they get up in that morning and, and dad could do everything, right? It's like, you know, I remember when I was young, it's like, oh, my dad could whoop your dad's butt, right? You don't know my dad. 
I remember I got in this argument on my, where I lived on 21st place in Clinton, and my next-door neighbors worked at DuPont. Somebody else worked somewhere else. Oh, it was Bob Blackaby, Dad. I used to get in arguments with Bob Blackaby. He went to our church, and he worked at Kimplex. And they always used to ride me and say that their jobs were more important than my dad's. And that'd make me so mad because my dad worked at Interstate Power. And I'd get so mad because it was like, my dad's better than your dad with the neighbors. And then Bob would always just, he was just playing with me. And I'd come home mad. I'd come home mad because I didn't know quite how to defend my dad. Until my dad spoke to me. I said, son, I work for the power company. If I don't work, they don't work. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. You know, you get the spirit of the macho man, and, like, you're going back. And you're like, well, if my dad doesn't work, your dad doesn't work. My dad works. Right? My dad works. Jesus... <laughs> The arguments on the Sabbath. Why are you working on the Sabbath? Because I see my father working. And I'm not going to let a law keep me from doing from what my father tells me to do. I'm going to preach myself happy in a second. (laughs) Wish I would have wrote that down. All right. Lastly, last week we get to the faith chapter. And we're going to go through that next week. He's coming through and he's, he's talked about how the old, what the old was, how it's moving away, how Christ is on the scene and what Christ does and who he does. And now he's going to say, now, let's talk about faith from the platform of everything we've just gone through. Amen? Thanks for joining with us today. And if that message touched your heart in some way please let us know by emailing us at info.kingdomlife@aol.com. You can also find us and reach out to us on Facebook. And we hope that you will join us again for another podcast from Kingdom Life Community Church.